Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, the Julius Silver Professor of Politics at New York University. He's a senior fellow with the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and the author of numerous books, including The Logic of Political Survival, co-authored with Alastair Smith, Randolph Severson, and James Morrow, a book that's had a big impact on the way I think about politics and a book that was the subject of a podcast we did last summer. Bruce, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Bruce, I want to talk with you today about some of the policy differences between democracies and dictatorships and the incentives they face. So first, let's look at your theory of the selectorate that you outline in the logic of political survival. We all know about the electorate, the people who vote in a democracy. What do you mean by the selectorate? Well, by the selectorate, I mean the people who have uh, a meaningful say in choosing who leaders are. And in a democracy, that is the electorate, which is the outcome of elections is determined by how people vote. Uh, in a uh, military junta, uh, the selectorate might be the generals, perhaps some colonels, uh, maybe some senior civil servants. That would also be true in um, many autocracies, although the civil servants would probably be a little bit more numerous. In monarchies, it might be the royal family and some key entrepreneurs and so forth. So the selectorate is the set of people who have a say, and it varies greatly in its size. And they don't when you say they have a say outside of a place with the rule of law and normal elections where they're fairly honest, uh, having a say isn't quite what we think of as, as having a say in like where we're going to go to dinner tonight. Um, you know, no, they, my kids they might the have folks, a... They are the folks who uh, pick the leader. So in North Korea, uh, nominally, the selectorate might be the members of the Workers' People's Party. And more realistically, it is a small subset of the Workers' People's Party uh, of Korea, maybe three, four hundred people, without whom uh, no leader could be chosen. Now, they don't all necessarily support the person who's chosen, but but the choosers are, that's the group of people who are the choosers. Right, and among them, there's the... The idea of a winning coalition, right? The, yes. Enough of you get you garner support from enough of them to stay in office, right? So the winning coalition are the people who, from that selectorate, give support and are essential. Their support is essential to keep the leader in office, in exchange for which they get benefits from the leader, usually in the form of uh, corruption opportunities, rent-seeking, bribes, and so forth. Plunder, booty, exactly. Yeah, uh, and one of the key differences then between a democracy and a dictatorship or an autocracy is is the size of that winning coalition. It is both the size of the winning coalition and the ratio of the winning coalition to the selectorate. When the winning coalition is larger, it's not efficient for leaders to rule by handing out uh, tribute. It's efficient for them to rule by producing effective public policy. And when the selectorate is a uh, very large uh, number relative to the size of the winning coalition, so the ratio is small, then to keep the support of one's followers, the leader doesn't have to spend as much on them as as you would if the coalition were large relative to the selectorate. And that means that the leader has more discretion, which may translate into a Swiss bank account, or it may translate, as with a Lee Kuan Yew or a Deng Xiaoping, into uh, clever uh, policies, or as with a Mao or a Khrushchev, may translate into the use of discretion for dumb policies. So explain that again, and, and here's – pick one example. Give, give me an example of an autocracy with either a small or a large uh, winning coalition. Okay. And how and explain why I mean the interesting part here I think for our listeners is the idea that that democracies pursue economic policies that are good for the general public not because they're loving and kind but because the incentives are there. In the case of a of an autocracy, a dictator uh is going to not have to do that 
because he doesn't he's bribing effectively a much smaller number of people and i don't quite understand the the distinction you're making back in that, okay, in that example okay so i'm making a distinction between the mix of public and private goods that are provided to keep the coalition happy that depends on how big the coalition is the bigger the coalition the more you have to spend money on public goods rather than private rewards for the cronies. And that's because there are too many cronies to pass out the yeah, it's just, and not uh, enough people to exploit left right, behind, right? Right. You can think of the size of the coalition as the implicit price of private goods. And so as the coalition gets bigger, the price goes up. This is something de Tocqueville uh, observed. And so you just you just can't you don't have enough money to bribe the individuals. You have to produce public goods that everybody gets to benefit from. So that's the mix. Then how much in total of the government's revenue you spend on the things that will keep the coalition happy? That depends not only on the size of the coalition but also the size of the selectorate. And the reason is very straightforward. Think of the selectorate as the pool of people from which. The, the essential supporters, the coalition, can be drawn. When the pool is very large and the set of people you need is very small, if you're in the coalition getting goodies and you defect to a rival politician deciding to support that person, the probability that you will be essential to that person down the road is pretty low because there are lots of substitutes for you. The selectorate is big. As a result, to keep, for the incumbent to keep you loyal, that is to match or beat what you think you could get if you switched to a rival, the incumbent doesn't have to spend as much as would have to be spent if the coalition were large relative to the selectorate so that you would have a high probability of being in the next guy's essential group of supporters if you were to switch horses. And that leaves more discretion for the leader to keep goodies for himself. Exactly. And in both cases, I assume, uh, you want a certain level of public uh, productivity of, of nationwide economic health because you are going to be extracting some of it, right? Yes. yes. In fact, uh, of course, you, you, want, you don't want to extract so much from uh, the, the working public that uh, they consume lots of leisure instead of working, that they, they have no incentive to work. Because then, of course, you won't have replacement money in the future and you won't be able to keep your coalition loyal. So there's a delicate balance that dictators or any leader has to follow. It turns out that the uh, implicit tax rate when the coalition is small is higher than when it's large. I'll give you an example. Uh, in North Korea, where per capita income is about $600, uh, the tax rate on average is about 10%. In the United States, the federal tax rate is about 20% on average. Now, it sounds like the United States has a higher tax rate, but of course, on a $600 income in the United States, people pay nothing. Right. Their tax uh, on a $10,000 income, people pay nothing. So uh, you don't start paying taxes in the United States until you would be at the outer limits of wealth in North Korea. They pay so the comparable the person with comparable income uh, or purchasing power parity pays a much, much higher tax rate in North Korea because, of course, they have to be feeding the uh, rent-seeking demands of the leadership. And Kim those... Jong-il may be taxing at uh, an inefficient rate because people are, are not being very successful at producing enough replacement wealth, which is what has driven him, presumably, to uh, export missile technology and potentially nuclear weapons technology. Well, he's very, you know, he's very entrepreneurial. He's looking for market yes. opportunities outside of the standard domestic opportunities he has. You have, exactly you have, so. You have to give him credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the poor fellow uh, doesn't have the benefit of, uh, say, Mr. Putin, of having a lot of natural resources in the ground with which he can increase his wealth without uh, increasing tax on labor. So he has to be entrepreneurial and find other ways. And I just want to stop on that for a sec. You mentioned the example of a 10% tax rate that goes to the government. The government spends the money in a, in a much different way in North Korea than they spend it in the United States. But tax revenue is, is only one of many ways that, that a leader can extract resources from the general public and give it to his friends. Uh, the natural resource sector is, is an obvious example, right? Yes, indeed. And uh, there is another very important sector 
uh, one that unfortunately doesn't get attended to in the context in which I will put it, but it should be. Uh, and that is, you know, economists have done a very nice job of identifying the natural resource curse and its effects, that is having oil or diamonds or gold or uh, that sort of thing in the ground. Foreign aid has exactly the same effects because foreign aid, like oil in the ground, is money that the leader can tap into without having to increase the taxes on uh, labor. It's essentially, in that sense, a free good. Well, that sounds appealing, right? It sounds like foreign aid then is a way of, with along with natural resource revenue, is a way of autocrats to keep money funneled to their friends without having to punish the general public. But that's not just the nature of the curse. The curse is, is bigger than that, correct? Yes, that's correct. It actually does punish the public because uh, on several dimensions, it helps to sustain leaders in office who are doing a bad job from the perspective of the general public right. and so oppresses the public. And uh, while uh, getting foreign aid is free in terms of taxing labor, since after all, presumably the leader is already taxing at an optimal rate, uh, there is a price to be paid for foreign aid, and that is that uh, the recipient makes policy concessions to the donor in exchange for the money. That benefits the donor government because the donor government gets policies that its constituents want. The donor government is almost always a democracy. And that benefits the donor government's constituents because they're at the margin getting better policies. It benefits the recipient government's leaders because now they have money with which to supplement bribes to their cronies and discretion for themselves. But it harms the citizenry because the policies that are being sold are policies that the citizenry doesn't like. After all, if you were going to follow these policies anyway, there'd be no need to give you money. All right, now, this is a very uh, cynical and, I think, accurate, unfortunately. The, oh, the uh, data are overwhelming that this is true not only for U.S. foreign aid giving, but for all OECD giving. So let's set up this uh, paradox. The, a lot of Americans have this idealism that we're giving foreign aid to poor countries to help their poor, starving people. In fact, it's not just, well, it doesn't do everything it's intended to do. It actually does the opposite of what it appears to do and is uh, allegedly intended to do. It makes it easier for the leaders of those nations to ignore any institutional change that might actually benefit those folks and – serves the interests of uh, the constituents of the donor. But here's my here's my question, Bruce. It's actually a little bit worse than you just stated. Okay, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that it, it not only uh, discourages the leaders from making changes that would benefit the citizens, it makes it easier for them to purge people and tighten further their grip on government uh, so that if they face a credible threat to their hold on power, it makes it uh, more sensible for their response to be to reduce the size of the coalition and cut back on the few private uh, public goods that they are providing, increasing private goods, rather than increasing the public welfare that they produce uh, and then moving in a more democratic direction. That's lovely. And, and by private goods here and public goods, you, public goods, you mean things that benefit a large the economy at large. Private goods are things that the leader keeps for him, for him or herself, correct? And the and the and the friends, the cronies, right. yeah. yeah. Um, but here's the puzzle. If the average American – bad choice. If the constituents of the Democratic leader do genuinely care about the citizens of the poor nations, then it is imaginable that foreign aid would help those people. That would be the condition. Absolutely. But those are be. not the conditions that we put on the, – the real, the real tragedy here – is that donors do ask things of recipient nations in return for the money that is given, but it's not what you'd think. It's not that they indeed give them to the people who, who we are trying supposedly to help. In fact, it's other things, correct? That is exactly correct, and there's a perfectly straightforward reason for that. Uh, there's a tendency for people to think that there's something corrupt about the way foreign aid is, is given out through conditionality. Uh, because it's not helping poor people. But the, the reason that's done by democratic governments is because the leaders have calculated 
that the policy concessions are what their constituents want. Let me give you a concrete example. Uh, Hamas is the freely elected leadership in the Palestinian Authority. As soon as they were elected, the United States, our European allies, and of course the Israelis, cut off economic assistance to the Palestinian Authority. Why? They all profess to want to see the spread of democracy. But of course what they want to see is the spread of policies that are amenable to their constituents, and the Hamas policies were not. The United States has not been a cheerleader for the emergence of a more democratic Iran than Iran was under the Shah. Iran still has a long way to go to be a full-fledged democracy, but much more so than it was under the Shah. So what happens is that when voters face the hard choice between supporting candidates who endorse giving money to governments whose policies are abhorrent to them, or cutting back the money to try to induce better policies, what we see is that the voters choose the latter. So it would be anti-democratic for a democratically elected leader who hopes to get re-elected to use foreign aid to advance an agenda that does not benefit his or her constituents at home. And that's the problem. That is the, the problem of foreign aid. Everybody understands in the long run, making people more prosperous and making people freer is a good thing. But in the short run, it may produce abhorrent policies in another country. And that's a bad thing because politicians live in the short run. They don't live in the long run, especially in democracies. But you picked a complicated example where the constituents of, of Hamas and the, and the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority are uh, both poor and have foreign policy uh, uh, desires that may conflict with the United States. Let's take a nation where the foreign policy aspects seem to be rather – would be benign and yet – so-called first world aid organizations, the IMF and the World Bank, uh, continue to give money to a dictatorship that is um, not particularly uh, pro or, or con the foreign policy interests of, say, the United States or Europe, but are uh, not helping their people with that money. Do you have an explanation for that? Sure. Uh, this is a complicated explanation. First of all, uh, at the margin – all countries' foreign policies are somewhat helpful or somewhat harmful. One of the things that we know about voting in the United States is that uh, members of Congress are much more likely to vote for foreign aid when their district contains a lot of voters who come from recipient countries, as from countries that are getting aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are responsive. They understand that their reelection is dependent on, on getting uh, money to those folks, and that at the end depends on policies, which may not be national security policies. They may be trade policies. It may be buying Caterpillar tractors or uh, other uh, American agricultural goods or whatever, something that benefits constituents at home. In addition, uh, the World Bank is itself a, a political entity that has a small coalition system. Yep. I mean, who runs the World Bank? The World Bank, the the loan decisions are made by a committee made up of representatives of banks and loan-receiving countries. The banks have their money guaranteed, so they're not particularly worried about the risk. It is guaranteed by, for example, the United States government. And the uh, recipient country representatives are the very people whose governments have been stealing money. They want to continue to see that flow. And the World Bank exists to make loans. If the World Bank were in the business of not making loans, there wouldn't be a World Bank. Right, loans and grants. They also loans give away grants. money. Loans and grants, yes. And uh, the World Bank deal, actually. Um, is doing what is incentive compatible, that is, in the interest of its constituents. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean advancing welfare. There's you know, quite a substantial literature, particularly led by uh, my colleague at NYU, Bill Easterly, that argues that uh, World Bank monies have actually done more harm than good in the world. And I, I'm very, I'm very uh, sympathetic to those arguments, and I recommend uh, uh, both of his books, The Elusive Quest for Growth and The White Man's Burden that came out recently because they, they are phenomenally uh, – phenomenal chronicles of the failure of 
international aid organizations to achieve their alleged explicitly stated ends. But in your world, in the model that we're talking about, uh, it would be hard to believe that that for 50 years or 40 years, these organizations would stupidly and mistakenly continue to do policies that have have no impact or have a, a negative impact given their, their uh, public goals. So you're suggesting that they have actually other goals that they are achieving with that money. Is that correct? That is correct. In fact, uh, you know, Bill and I talk quite often, and uh, I chide him on being overly optimistic about foreign aid, uh, whereas most people chide him for being so negative. Uh, and the reason that I chide him is that he does not take into consideration the political incentives behind how aid is given. So in the way my colleagues, my co-authors, and I look at aid, aid programs have been successful, not unsuccessful. It's just that what they succeed at is not what most people who have studied aid think the objective is, such as reducing poverty and so forth. Uh, Aid is successful at keeping countries' policies in line with the desires of the donor. And on the flip side, in keeping autocrats in power. It's very hard for democratic leaders to pursue policies that another government wants if their citizens don't want it because they won't get reelected. But it's not hard for autocrats because they don't depend on on, on policy, delivering policy in order to get reelected or rechosen. They depend on bribing their cronies. One of the beauties of this um, steely-eyed uh, worldview that we're that we're talking about here is um, you, you you learn to distinguish between what people say and what they do. Uh, it's a very valuable lesson in life. Uh, it seems rather obvious, but I think a lot of people have trouble uh, keeping those two things uh, apart. They are very different, and the beauty of um, of this approach that we're talking about is that we assume in in many examples of economics, and here we're talking about politics, that what people do is what they want. What they say is what they might think you'd like to hear. They're not the same thing. They are not the same thing. Well, let's turn to a uh, an application of this um, of this worldview, which is uh, in a recent paper, you, you, you speak about the differences between democracies and uh, autocracies in pursuing war as a as an end as a means to an end and you exploit the fact that the winning coalition in a democracy is dramatically larger uh than the winning coalition in the uh dictatorships can you talk about that sure uh, having a larger winning coalition uh which typifies democracies has several consequences with regard to war first it means that democratic leaders are necessarily much more selective about the wars they fight because democratic leaders are almost certain of being deposed, that is, not reelected, if they lose a war, as the Republicans have just experienced. So they are very selective about choosing fights where they believe going in, that their probability of victory is a near certainty. As was clear, the Bush administration believed in March 2003, going into Iraq. And they were right on a certain dimension well, and they wrong on another. They, they defeated the Saddam Hussein right. government. They did so easily. They regrettably didn't have a plan for what they were going to do afterwards that was particularly effective, and that has left them vulnerable, as the most recent midterm election demonstrated. Not only are they highly selective, but uh, what the analyses that my colleagues and I have done on, on war shows is that when Democrats get into a war and then discover that it is not won as easily as they thought, they alter their behavior by increasing their effort, which is, of course, exactly what President Bush is now they proposing up. that we do. <laughs> they double up, yeah. It's because losing is, is very costly to the politician. Autocrats, by contrast have a completely different approach to war. So we could describe Democrats before the fact as having a risk-averse strategy about war. Choose wars we are very likely to win. If you learn things aren't going well, put more resources in because winning is is the public good of importance. You said Democrats. You meant Democratic leaders. Democratic leaders, yes. Sorry. Autocrats, in contrast, since they are not 
judged primarily on their policy performance, but rather on their ability to deliver goodies to their cronies, can afford to be more adventuresome in war, as long as they keep enough resources in reserve to continue to pay their cronies off sufficiently. So this means that they are willing to fight in a much broader swath of circumstances than our democratic leaders. They are more likely to find themselves in trouble militarily uh, in a war, and they are less likely to put extra resources in to try to win if those extra resources have to come at the expense of their cronies. As long as they don't face uh, total defeat. Yes, as long as it well, as long as they don't face removal by the victorious foreign rival. They are unlikely to be removed by their domestic cronies if they lose the war but continue to deliver private goods. I mean, that's the interesting phenomenon. Uh, autocrats are likely to be removed if they're defeated by a democracy because Democrats want to put somebody in place who will toe the line. Uh, but they are not likely to be removed by their own coalition. They're not likely to face a coup, for example, because they have lost the war if they have reserved the resources to bribe the cronies. Um, there's a great deal of, of evidence uh, for this. So in the war, they tend not to increase their effort when it's going badly, except when they expect that losing the war means their removal. Uh, an interesting example of this is uh, the way that the Second World War was fought through most of its period by the Germans. Uh, Hitler did not mobilize the German steel industry, for example, to the level that it had been mobilized in World War I because he feared losing the support of his, uh, of the Junker Fraus, to be precise, if he didn't continue to manufacture consumer goods. This is one of the reasons why he needed to have uh, slave labor and control the Ukraine and so forth, because he needed other places to produce the steel. He was not willing to disrupt the German economy. Only very, very late in the war, when it was clear that defeat meant being deposed, uh, did the Germans really crank up the war effort. This Whereas the Allies cranked up from almost day one. It's a really interesting example. By Junkerfraus, you meant the housewives, correct? The housewives, yes. Right. What's, what's fascinating about that on a number of dimensions, I think most people have the idea that a dictator uh, is able to follow a real total war effort in a way that a democracy cannot. In fact, you're suggesting it's the opposite because a dictator is never really a dictator the way we uh, – the cartoon right. version where the dictator could, quote, do whatever he wants. He still has to curry favor with, with folks, and you're suggesting that in, in Germany in World War II – the general public had some political power over um, over events. That's correct? right. That's right. Uh, general public's a little broad. Sorry, uh, but uh, th th there was a a group of uh, middle class, relatively comfortable people whose support Hitler viewed as necessary, and he adapted to what he believed would keep them loyal to him. Okay, well, let's go back to this um, calculus of, of war uh, that we're comparing democracies and autocracies. It's a fascinating point that a dictator can lose a war uh, re with relatively little political cost as long as he has enough reserves to pay off his cronies, whereas a democratic leader almost always faces uh, being deposed. Of course, even after a victory, a lot of democratic leaders get deposed. People are just often tired of their of their face and they can vote him out. Right. Um, but what about – the benefits from war. Have, do you have something to say about that? Why, if I'm a, if I'm a, a dictator and life is good, I've, I've got a secure power base of these, uh, the selectorate of these cronies, this winning coalition. I'm paying them off. If I'm lucky, they're small enough that I can, uh, I can uh, keep a lot for myself. Why go off to war and risk uh, a defeat that could depose me? That's a very good question, and I think that there are. Two reasons. Uh, one is that uh, autocrats have a lot of discretion, and they have policy beliefs. Uh, some of them, as I mentioned earlier, have good ideas about policy, like Lee Kuan Yew, and others, uh, like Mao, have really bad ideas. 
included in those bad ideas are beliefs about uh, you know, that they may be able to expand the resource base from which they can extract uh, through conquering neighbors and the like. Uh, they fight wars primarily over land grabs or, in the old days, tribute payments. So they are seeking a way to, you know, that utility function for wealth is always going up. Yes, more it, is preferred to less. It's more been is preferred to less. So they're seeking ways to grab more. Also, because dictators run inefficient economies, remember, they distort the economy to reward their cronies. So they run inefficient economies. Over time, they begin to run into a shortage of resources for bribing their cronies. And then they need to find some other source of resources. So either they can be entrepreneurially clever. We go back to the example of Kim Jong-il, uh, who figured out that exporting missiles was a way to, to bring in more money. Uh, or they become adventuresome in foreign policy in, a, in the hope of being able to grab additional resources by conquering a neighbor and getting tribute or taking land. This was essentially the story of Saddam Hussein in 1991. Maybe he could take part of Kuwait and control additional oil fields, and that would secure his position. Uh, so there is they have these ideas about policy, and they also have an increasing need because the rent-seeking society they run is an inefficient society. Gradually, they run the economy down. I guess the other issue, which I'd never thought about, is the incentives of the cronies. They're always relatively eager to push for a war because it's certainly going to expand their their booty Absolutely. and their plunder. And their head is less likely to roll than the leaders, so they kind of – are pushing the the leader over the edge uh, often more often than perhaps the leader would like to go, but the leader has to respond to their political pressure also. The leader has to keep them loyal, and if they think that the leader is not going to be able to deliver the goodies to them, they will find somebody else who can. That's exactly right. Let's turn to an interesting uh, application of this, or at least what might be an interesting application. In in recent last couple of years. Um, there's been a lot more bellicose uh, talk about the United States from Venezuela and Iran and a lot less from some other places. So this current military activity by the United States in the Middle East in Afghanistan and Iraq immediately quieted down on paper at least a bunch of people. Um, Libya, Egypt, Syria all made noises like, ooh, we're scared. We could be next. Yep. Iran got louder. Uh, and Venezuela got louder. Uh, a, a lot of people, you know, say, "Well, those guys are crazy. They're madmen. What do you expect?" Uh, you take a more rational approach. Tell us about it. Well, I certainly don't think that they are madmen. I think that they are very skillful politicians. Uh, let's start with Iran's Ahmadinejad. Um, his prior job was as mayor of the city of Tehran. He was not seen a year and a half ago uh, when he was elected president. He was not seen as a major contender for electoral victory. He had very little broad-based national experience and so forth. He carved out uh, a campaign agenda, and he has stuck to it, uh, that resonated with the people who select leaders in Iran. And he has sustained himself in power through that agenda. Part of that agenda, of course, is the nuclear weapons program. Now, we might ask, why would Iran want to have a nuclear weapons program, putting aside their dress-up statements that they, they need nuclear energy for uh, the future to you know, light their houses? They're almost so out of oil, I heard. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's what I hear. Any day now, <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll dry up. Uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad understood that the, um, the college students and young professionals were getting very unhappy with the state of the economy. It has been run down over the uh, now almost three decades since the Khomeinist revolution. And so, as I was saying about adventures a moment ago, needs in this rent-seeking, run-down economy needs to do things. Uh, to bolster support. And one of the things that he's been able to do is, is to 
choose this nuclear issue, which resonates, it's very popular with the young professionals, they, they feel pride in it, but it serves other very important purposes. Iran uh, has been losing its uh, dominant position as the exporter of uh, Islamic fundamentalism, especially Shia fundamentalism, and it has been losing its uh, fundamentalist edge because of the rise of al-Qaeda and associated organizations. So part of the nuclear program is a political competition for securing Iran's primacy in, in Ahmadinejad's ambitions to strengthen his hold and spread his country's influence by becoming more important in that world than al-Qaeda. He creates a, a bargaining leverage and he creates opportunities through this program, and he secures his hold on power. Hugo Chavez, very similar. So Hugo Chavez, let's look at his history. Before Hugo Chavez was elected uh, as the president of Venezuela, Chavez had, was, was an officer in the Venezuelan military who attempted a coup, and the coup failed. So he had gone through the route of, let's see if I can't put together a small group of uh, other like-minded military officers and overthrow uh, a, a democratically elected government, take charge of the country. Didn't work out. So he, he had a fallow period of a few years while he thought about other ways to do it. And he came to understand that uh, a sort of populist electoral platform might be the path. Having gotten elected, what, is, what has he done? He, too, has done the things that are essential for securing continued hold on power. Unfortunately, a lot of people see elections as equivalent to democracy. People like Chavez understand, as Putin understands in Russia, that you can have elections and not have to worry, provided, for example, that you control what the media get to say, provided that you control the, the ability of people to assemble and protest what you are doing. So Hugo Chavez has taken control of the mass media in Venezuela and ensures that the publicity that his political opponents get is either zero or negative. In the process, he lays the groundwork for his continuation in office, either through repeated elections that will become increasingly rigged as the opposition has no access to transmitting its message, uh, or at some point he may just decide to revert to his military posture and, and conclude that he doesn't even need to go through the motions of elections, uh, as with the president of Turkmenistan, who in 1999 had himself declared president for life. So Chavez is doing things that may irritate the United States and may irritate some others, but has been very effective for him in securing his hold on power. And he is able to do this to a large extent, as Ahmadinejad does, because of the enormous wealth that can be extracted from oil. Again, you can turn up the spigot to make more money without having to increase tax on labor. So you can do things that look populist. Uh, and he has done that. And it's been very effective. And he holds power. Nothing crazy about that. That's a skillful politician. But his his uh, rants uh, about Bush or the United States or Israel, either either uh, coming out of Venezuela or Iran, uh, which uh, you're, you're suggesting they might not be as heartfelt as they uh, sound. They're they're just effective. Well, you know, when a country uh, has problems, as every country does, it is always better for the leaders to cast the blame elsewhere, and. The ripe target is typically the United States. Why are we living in misery? Because of the terrible things that the United States does. Why was the, were the people in the Soviet Union poor? Because of the, pol the aggressive policies of the United States. Never the fault of the internal government. And Chavez is good at pointing to outsiders as the source of problems, because there are plenty of problems in Venezuela's economy. Uh, outside the oil economy. And there are plenty of problems in Iran outside the oil economy. Standard of living has declined markedly since the Khomeini revolution. Uh, why? Well, 
you wouldn't if you if you're Ahmadinejad, you wouldn't want people sitting around saying it's because of the way the mullahs are running the government because you need their support to stay in power. So you would want to say, well, it's the evil United States that is on our doorstep threatening us, and so we have to divert resources in ways that we otherwise wouldn't want to. It's just a you know it's a good strategy. But the as long nuclear, as you can sell it, and since they control the media, they can sell it. The nuclear part of it, it's really a high risk uh, gamble on the surface. Uh, why not just uh, saber rattle? Why not just complain about the United States and Israel and whatever other uh, devils you want to paint? But by legitimate, actually pursuing nuclear weapons as opposed to just talking about them, although both are, are relatively dangerous, you do invite a, an attack. Isn't that a high-risk strategy to be following in Iran? Well, I don't think it's a particularly high-risk strategy, but remember, uh, autocrats can take higher risks than Democrats. Uh, I don't think it's particularly high-risk because I don't believe that Ahmadinejad believes that the United States is leveling a credible threat at this time to use force. Why not? Well, because the United States military is stretched to the limit in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So where, you know, certainly we could drop some bombs. Uh, this would provoke a retaliatory strike, probably against the Israelis as well as American facilities in Iraq that would be vulnerable, uh, and that we would have a hard time containing. In addition, I, you know, it's talk, not action. Uh, it is in game theory language. Cheap talk. It's not clear that it costs him anything to make the kinds of statements that he makes. It doesn't cost him anything at home. And he has a role model to look at, North Korea. Uh, North Korea has succeeded in making some sort of nuclear device uh, without a strike. The time when a strike would have been most plausible was around 1994. It didn't happen. The United States was... Uh, reluctant and otherwise occupied. And I think Ahmadinejad looks at that and sees, as Mao used to say, a paper tiger. So I don't think he sees it as a terribly risky strategy. The delicate balance that he has to pursue is that his political rivals, like Rafsanjani, want to portray it as a risky strategy for their own electoral benefits. And of course, Ahmadinejad's party did poorly in the most recent uh, local elections, which some people take as an optimistic sign that he's getting himself into trouble with this program. But that's his, his political rivals are trying to exploit it to gain electoral support by arguing that it's risky. It's not obvious what the risks are. Let me come back to a point you made earlier about uh, what's a real democracy. Uh, we talked about how democracies are, are less likely to go to war because the cost to leaders of, of a failure are higher than they are for, for a dictator. The world appears to be getting more democratic over the last, say, 25 to 30 years. It, it certainly appears to be getting more market-oriented on the economic sphere, but on the political sphere, it appears to be getting more democratic. But you're sounding a, a note of, of, um, of caution here that, that – and, and if that were true, that – we would think then the world would get more peaceful, but you're suggesting that some of the things we're calling democracies uh, aren't really particularly democratic, and therefore optimism is, is not in order. Uh, I, I, I think that's exactly right. Let me make a very sharp distinction between market economies and democracy. Uh, one of the things that autocrats seem to have learned, at least since the end of the Cold War, a little bit before that, is that they can use market economies and the economic growth that that markets foster as a mechanism to sustain themselves in power rather than to put themselves at risk. And they've been very, very skillful at that. Now, with regard to democracy, in some nominal sense, it is certainly true that the world appears much more democratic today than it did, say, in 1980. And there's no question that Russia is a less autocratic country, a less totalitarian country than, than the Soviet Union was. China also. Uh, I'm not prepared to say that about China. Okay. I don't see the evidence for that. Okay. Uh, let's talk about what, what does this actually mean. Well, people make the mistake of thinking that countries that have elections, competitive elections, that multiple candidates, uh, have met the requirements for being democratic. One of my co-authors and I, uh, George Downs, uh, and I were on the, the Charlie Rose show about a year ago uh, when... Uh, Egypt was holding a presidential election, and uh, 
Charlie Rose commented that uh, Egypt was becoming more democratic. They had an election with multiple candidates, and both George and I said this was not true. It was this was this was uh, a naive belief? After all, Mubarak controlled access to the media. He controlled freedom of assembly. So the opposition candidates had very slim prospects. Everybody understood that. Most importantly, Mubarak and his supporters understood that. And of course, he uh, allegedly won 70% of the votes. And they controlled the most important thing in an election, the freedom to count the votes. So uh, when we see countries voting, even with competitive elections, we want to step back and we want to ask at least three questions. Are people free to assemble? If the answer is no, we are not looking at a democratic process. Is the media free to report whatever it wants? If the answer is no, we are not looking at a democratic process. Let me make a a stark statement in that regard. The Japanese media get their information from the government ministries only. They are not that free. They don't have access to or the opportunity to report independent information and hope to continue to have access to the government information. And certainly when we talk about places like Egypt uh, or Haiti that has had elections and so forth, this is to the nth degree true. So do people have freedom of assembly? answer is no, we don't have a democratic process. If they don't have a free press, we don't have a democratic process. And if the ballots are not counted by a nonpartisan, neutral mechanism, we don't have a democratic process. The very large percentage of the countries of the world that we now say have moved towards democracy, they're not yet liberal democracies in the U.S. or British sense, sense, but they've moved towards, a very large percentage of them don't have at least one of those three things in place. Many of them don't have any of them in place. And we perhaps mistakenly then focus on the counting. I think a lot of the um, – oh, only. Counting is important obviously, but the counting only. A lot of times the UN is going around to these elections and and certifying them as fair. Yes. And what they're certifying is that the voting was fair in that everybody who voted, most of the votes were counted and were counted accurately. But if you didn't look at the first two stages, the uh, yeah. the information and the ability to rally, uh, you kind of missed the boat. You're yeah, and, and Russia is becoming the classic example of this. If Mr. Putin does not declare a national emergency and continue himself in office, uh, if there is an election, there will be multiple parties and uh, so forth, and the, and the votes will probably be counted fairly. But why not? His government controls access to information. They control the media. So why not allow fair counting if you are confident that the manipulation of information is sufficient to ensure your election? And of course, he's popular because he is He's delivered increased growth because of the, the value of, of oil. You well, raised China earlier. Yeah, I want to come back to China. I don't see any evidence that China has liberalized in politically. It has certainly moved to a market economy. Let's let's start by asking a, a historic question. Why did China in the in nineteen seventy nine begin economic reform, movement towards a market economy? I have a rather cynical answer to that question. Uh, Remember, Deng Xiaoping had been exiled earlier. He was brought back from exile to run China. He was out. He was not a a member of the Communist Party in good standing who happened to rise through the ranks and become the leader of the country. He was a man sent into exile because of his views, in particular, his economic views. Why was he brought back? He was brought back for those economic views. Why? Well, prior to Deng's return, China had gone through a lengthy period of two monumentally stupid policies, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, both of which were a huge leap backwards in terms of sustaining the economy and sustaining the flow of resources that ensured that the Communist Party could continue to sustain itself in power. They needed something new to revitalize their hold on power, and that something new 
were the ideas that had been discredited just a few years before when Deng was exiled, his ideas about economic reform. What did he achieve? He achieved enormous growth in China, which led people in the West almost immediately to talk about how China was now going to quickly evolve into a democratic country because it would be a rising middle class and the rising middle class would demand a say over government. This is a very common argument. It was an argument uh, articulated in the 50s by Seymour Martin Lipset, uh, who recently passed away, a great thinker, uh, but it was wrong. We are now 28 years since Deng introduced the economic reforms in China, and the Communist Party remains the sole arbiter of all policy in China. The families of the uh, the children of the Communist Party members continue to enjoy great privileges. Corruption continues at a rampant rate, and so forth. Because the economic policies provided a mechanism to postpone the pressures for democratization rather than to hasten them. Now, I happen to believe that over the next few years, China is going to face some real challenges to the Communist Party's hold, and it will be interesting to see if they are skillful enough to work their way through these problems, thread the needle, and keep themselves in power. The problem that I see them facing is that they have reached a, a stage where, at least in the coastal provinces, the cost of labor has been bid up sufficiently that a lot of low-end manufacturing is moving away from China and going to other places that can offer com a comparative advantage uh, on the labor front. So China is making an attempt to shift to higher technology kinds of production, like automobiles. That requires more skilled workers, uh, but that's workers with greater skills, not a larger number of workers. Uh, and that means having a broader number of people with access to uh, education at higher levels besides the cronies of uh, the children of the, of the Communist Party membership. Now, what does that mean? So that means that these are people who are likely to have better access to information. Now, the Chinese have done things to counter that. First of all, education tends to be technology-oriented rather than, so to speak, liberal arts-oriented. It's not oriented towards helping people to think about uh, how their resources ought to be allocated. Second, the Chinese, of course, have been very aggressive in trying to control uh, search engines and the flow of information through the Internet. Uh, they already control all the other internal sources of information. So these are the mechanisms by which they are attempting to shift the economy while at the same time sustaining control. Whether they will be able to, is, and, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I haven't studied it closely. Um, but that seems to me to be an interesting problem where they may face real pressures four, five, ten years down, down the road. But they have been very skillful in using the market mechanism to postpone any of those pressures. But but the cost of that to them is is not zero. Which you, I want to challenge your interpretation of the last 25 years, 28 years. They've opened their economy up economically. Yep. They've brought in uh, a lot of foreign capital and they brought in a lot of foreigners, people who are on, on the ground there to oversee the, the use of that capital and multinational corporations. There are a lot more eyes on the ground. They bring other things with them. And so the ability of the Chinese to repress their people, which was much easier in the past, seems to have gone down a great deal. What's the evidence for that statement? Uh, I think uh, armchair theorizing. That's the evidence. <laughs> Do you think it would be as easy today to uh, slaughter large numbers of, of folks as it was 40 years ago in China? Well – Do you think they would, they would pay – let me say it differently. Let me defend my armchair theorizing uh, remark. The cost to them has gone up. They will lose some of their uh, economic benefits if they do that. It didn't. That wasn't true 25 years ago. So uh, 17 years ago, they had Tiananmen Square. Correct. And Tiananmen Square, they very clearly understood that they were confronting a moment of choice between the uh, – economy moving forward, and democratization. 
and they chose to put the economy's forward progression at risk in order to secure themselves in power. And they removed the leader of the country to do so. Uh, now, would they do that again, I guess, is the question. That is the question. And I believe the answer is yes, and I believe the reason the answer is yes, that they learned a very important lesson from Tiananmen Square. Nothing happened, yeah. Well, there, you know, for a few weeks, there were uh, some economic consequences, only for a few weeks, and, and then they disappeared. Uh, so what they learned, I think, is that the foreign investors aren't so much concerned about the nature of governance as they are about the predictability of governance in the That's economy. That's true. No, they like that certainty thing. They well, like let, that let, certainty thing. Let me challenge you a different way then. Right now, I suspect listening to our words are Chinese folks. Uh, I get emails from China about our podcasts, and I invite any Chinese listeners to give your impressions uh, in any form you'd like uh, via email to uh, these remarks about China that we're, that we're having. The, li the uh, website that hosts these podcasts, the Library of Economics and Liberty, uh, China is the third largest source of traffic on our website. Uh, the United States is first. The United States is about half of our traffic. The rest comes from the rest of the world. The leading country that's outside the United States that goes to this economics website is uh, the UK, is, is the United Kingdom. Uh, I think third or fourth is China, often third. So the Chinese have access to information, which by the way is also part of the economic liberalization that they've encouraged. You do have to have something of a free flow of information for economic activity compared to what it would be without that liberalization. So China has allowed – it's true they've cracked down on Google. They've done some other things. But I would suggest that the average Chinese citizen has an enormously larger access to information about the outside world than they had 28 years ago. Do you think that's true and does it matter? Okay. So let, uh, first of all, I think it is a wonderful thing that the podcast is reaching China and that you, you are contributing to this risk to the Communist Party that I am foreseeing over the next four, five, ten years. Of course, they could be listening also and they're learning from you how to uh, – it's tough, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe, though they're not fond of me as it turns out, but okay. be that as it may. Um, you said the average Chinese. I wish I hadn't used that word average. Do I think the average Chinese has access to more information? Well, in the st strictly statistical sense, yes, because people at the higher end of society have more access, and that drags the, the average right. mean up. Sure. Do I think the median person has more access? No. Well, that's maybe. Uh, you know, <laughs> most people in China are still incredibly poor. They are in re relatively remote areas. Uh, they are not terribly much enjoying the benefits of economic growth. They, they are enjoying them, but not nearly to the extent that uh, people in Guangdong and Shanghai and so forth are enjoying them. So do people in the major urban centers have more information? Yes. Is that a threat down the road to the regime? Yes. Is that threat that is the increase in that threat greater than the ability to offset it through the use of corruption opportunities with the greater amount of money in China? That's the question, and I think the answer is I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. That's where I see the possibility of the threat. Can the Chinese government manage that? Um, but I don't see China as a place that. Uh, has made any consequential moves in the direction of what I would call democratization, real democratization. Now, there have been some important developments. Uh, they have been rationalizing their labor law. That's a very good thing. Uh, still, the ability to strike by unions is rather limited. Uh, unions continue to be disproportionately. They, they, they are an arm of the party, not, a, not an independent source of information. I just I, I would like to be optimistic. I don't see the evidence yet. Uh, I see the growth of pressures that may change things, but I don't see yet the evidence that things are changing. And what would be your um, what policies do you think the United States could follow that would encourage uh, that those movements? Okay, or what good. policies should we not be following? Uh, 
That's that's a very nice question. Uh, I'll have to put that in a broader context than China because uh, the mechanisms that the United States has for influencing the politics in other countries uh, are primarily military intervention and foreign aid, neither one of which is particularly pertinent in the case of China. Uh, In the case of China, there's really nothing much that we can do other than exhortation. Uh, And exhortation is not terribly effective. The presence of increasing numbers of uh, foreign business people, I don't see as a pressure for the reasons I stated before. Those people are interested in extracting wealth, and that means having certainty. I use as an example uh, Nigeria. Why does the Nigerian government bring in British petroleum workers from uh, Europe, from England in particular, to run their uh, oil fields and the technical aspects of extracting oil rather than training Nigerians? Because the, the BP folks aren't interested in changing the government. They're just interested in getting their money and going home. Whereas if they, local people may use the know-how and the communication skills for other purposes. So what can the United States do? I'm happy, op- I'm happy to hear the answer, nothing, by the way. I just, I just- no, no, there is something. <laughs> Not necessarily in the case of China, but elsewhere in the world. There is a moment of opportunity, a window of opportunity in every country for changing its politics. And it's one that has not been adequately appreciated uh, so undoubtedly, dictators know part of this, but not all of it. Dictators who survive for the first two years or so in office typically uh, either die in their sleep or are overthrown when it is learned late in life that they have a terminal illness, that is, they can no longer be relied on to deliver bribes. In the first couple of years in office, dictators have a very high risk of being overthrown and replaced by another new dictator who has a high risk of being overthrown because they have not established yet their competence in thievery and the distribution of their uh, ill-gotten goods. So during those first two years, as it turns out, you have a better chance of surviving in office if you are democratically chosen than if you are a dictator. So there is a window of opportunity to say, you put in place free assembly and free uh, press, for example, and after you do that, we will give you economic assistance to help you get through this difficult time. The key is that if they put free assembly and a free press into place, It's not impossible, of course, to turn these things off. It's not that hard to turn the press off. But it is pretty hard, once people can mobilize for mass movements, it is pretty hard to turn that off without mass slaughter, which means that the the soldiers on the ground have to be willing. Uh, They often are not willing. Uh, We saw that with the coup in uh, the Soviet Union in, I guess, it was 91. Uh, We saw that with the, the Velvet Revolutions in Eastern Europe, particularly in Poland, where It was just too difficult to put down the mass movement. So if we link aid in transition periods to putting into place these two of the three pillars that I pointed to for getting democracy, we significantly increase the odds that the democracy will survive past that first two-year window. And in that two-year window, it should be pretty attractive to at least some would-be autocrats because they can't get to the third year if they don't make it through years one and two. And they have a better chance in one and two as Democrats. And they could be locked in as Democrats, particularly if they uh, deliver effective policy. They'll be popular and get reelected. But they will have put into place free speech, free assembly, which will make it hard for them to undo it later. That's the moment of opportunity that has not been exploited. And if correctly exploited, you get a genuine democracy or at least a higher chance of one staying in place and, right. in, and then a lower chance of, of uh, war because of the uh, incentives facing democracies. Exactly, and a lower prospect of needing to continue to deliver foreign aid because if you get these things in place, people will, you will have a, gen, a good probability of a genuine democracy, in which case you will also get prosperity because democracies tend to adopt policies that lead to prosperity. While we're on the subject of, uh, and we're almost out of time, while we're on the subject of uh, dictators dying in their sleep, do you have anything to say about Cuba? Uh, well, 
I was just talking to uh, representatives of a, uh, a Western government yesterday about how their government might help to promote democratization, and Cuba was a focal point of the discussion because Cuba is, of course, a place that is that is entering this transition period. Uh, Fidel is making a concerted effort to ensure uh, uh, essentially a dynastic a passage of power to sustain his regime by passing it to Raul. But Raul himself, of course, is in his late 70s. So that the transition opportunity is real in Cuba. And it'd be hard for the United States because it's suspect. But for other governments, this is a real moment of opportunity to help to lay the foundations for a an orderly, peaceful transition to democracy where it will be beneficial to the leaders in Cuba to do that, as well as to those who are helping to promote it from outside. I'm uh, pretty optimistic about Cuba. I love the idea of thinking there might be a, somebody in Cuba right now listening to this podcast. I, I doubt it, but um, it would be a great thing, and I hope... Uh, hope well, we can hope that Radio Marti picks it up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There you go. Yeah. My guest today has been Bruce Buena de Mesquita, the the Julius Silver Professor of Politics at New York University. He is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Thank you for joining us, Bruce. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.